Welcome to MAP, the bi-weekly market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. Mars makes it as easy as possible for you to get your pharmaceutical, medtech or digital health product to the market and of course get the price it deserves. My name is Stefan Walzer, I'm the founder of Mars and a health economist by training and working in the fields of market access, reimbursement, pricing and health economics already since 2004. And now let's learn about the market access and reimbursement systems around the globe. Pricing. It's always a big question if it's art or if it's science. You could discuss about that probably for hours. But at the end of the day, I think especially when you are really in the commercial area here, it's about being pragmatic as well. There are different ways how to create and how to develop the right kind of price. A lot of times it's also I would say a bit dictated quite clearly by the owners of the companies, which could also be the shareholders, obvious. Um, but uh, before that, there are also different methods available. So there are opportunities, for example, um, when going into the kind of details of the willingness to pay, which might especially maybe be relevant um, in the US market, where a lot of times also patients would need to pay on their own or good proportion of the cost for pharmaceuticals and also medical devices. In Europe, that might maybe not really apply to that, especially if we have the various kind of systems which basically pay then for the kind of products for the patient. So how to best then really estimate the kind of willingness to pay and or the demand for those kind of products. At the end of the day, there are different further opportunities to apply for. One of it could also be that um, you, as a kind of expert on pricing, the company could really have a look for um, anchor products. Sounds easy. It is not really. I think what is an anchor product? An anchor product could be a comparable kind of therapy or product, even in the same kind of indication. That's quite clear. I mean, if you have something with a very similar kind of medical benefit, for example, or if you find basically the kind of quite clear comparator in that indication. So if there is a standard therapy available for a given indication, for example, in breast cancer, if there is maybe for first-time breast cancer, a clear market leader in a country, then this could be the price anchor. Sounds again rather easy for most of the indications, but at the end of the day, especially if we think about um, European or even a global pricing strategy, this is then getting even a bit more complex and complicated. We all know that the healthcare pathways for patients are quite different, even when you just take maybe the three kind of regions with the United States of America, Japan, and maybe some regions in Europe. Even if you just take one country in Europe, sometimes you have even significant differences in terms of healthcare pathways for patients between two countries such as France and Germany, where you could maybe say that they are quite similar also when you think about the benefit assessment. Benefit assessment is another kind of important driver. Um, if you would assume that you get a positive added benefit in a country, you are obviously more easily be able to negotiate a higher price. But that might just be different to some other countries and also the willingness to, let's say, pay also out of the system is quite different. Think about countries like, let's say, Romania or Hungary, which are different, obviously, to countries like, for example, Sweden and Germany. That's also a very important kind of differentiation which needs to be taken into account when especially thinking about the European or global pricing strategy. But what if you don't have an anchor? So meaning, what if you would, for example, launch a product in an orphan disease where Nothing is really available. So physicians are doing a lot of off-label therapies, for example. There's no standard therapy available. You could quite clearly take still the kind of best supportive care, the off-label therapies, into account. 
in some of the jurisdictions, let's say in the legal frame of Germany, for example, it is not even allowed, at least not from the payer side, to take into account. As a pharmaceutical, you could obviously do it. On the other hand, you could also take, let's say, the overall general kind of treatment costs, for example, which could also be saved over time, but also which are happening without your kind of new therapy as a price anchor. On top of that, there's always the opportunity, let's say, to find other therapies with, for example, similar target patient numbers, meaning if you are, let's say, targeting 500, 600 patients a year in a given country, have a look how those other therapies in other indications, but with a similar kind of patient numbers, have been priced so far and also be accepted by the payer side. So you see already a lot of different options. So let's just see how to best plan for and how to also foresee maybe the future of pricing strategy with one of the global pricing experts, Renato Delamano from Italy. Good morning, Renato, one of the pricing strategy and also implementation experts. I think uh, we know probably also from a global perspective, even that I think you have a lot of Italian experience, but I think quite clearly, and I mean, whoever knows you, uh, you have as well developed a lot of global and European pricing strategies for a lot of important products and brands in the last couple of years. So what do you think? I think there is sometimes a bit of a question. Is price setting a strategy or is it rather an art or maybe the science? Well, first of all, good morning, Stefan. And uh, you know what? This question is a question that uh, Jack and I, when we when we hold our courses at the ESPOR, we always ask during those courses. We always ask our participants what they think about that. And uh, inevitably, after a little bit of a debate, the answer becomes, you know what? It's something that you develop in a scientific manner. You have to look for data, you have to look for information, you have to look for value demonstration and uh, evidence supporting your value proposition in a scientific manner. But in the end, the decision is, you know, somehow somehow is more art than, than science. Of of course, it's, a, it's an art that needs to take into account many aspects that have to be, again, professionally reviewed and analyzed, like uh, uh, the financial uh, uh, setting of the organization that is uh, uh, launching, planning the launch of the product, and consideration for the, for also for the sustainability of the new therapy from the various health systems. So, There is a lot of science behind a decision that eventually is a subjective decision. And that obviously implies a little bit of art, a little bit, you know, of what we used to call gut feeling. Exactly. I I just had that one as well in mind. I think the, the development of the whole kind of strategy, I think the way how to really set the kind of idea where to put as well the strategy and the pricing in there is, I, I would also agree, I think probably a, a good sense of our science. But ultimately, when it comes to the decision, which price to take, which price to also maybe offer in the various uh, um, jurisdictions across the world, then it's maybe as well some kind of art, I would agree, and a lot of gut feeling and experience. Um, So maybe, I mean, you mentioned it, I think a couple of times now that there is the kind of science behind. Could you guide us a bit through the general steps, how to best develop a national pricing strategy? Well, uh, you focus on national pricing strategy, but pricing strategy by definition has to be at least regional, meaning 
looking at the European Union, looking, looking at the European Union in the broader context, depending on, uh, again, what is the business scope of the organization that is designing that strategy. So, yes, you have to consider the local factors, but the local factors in the broader context. That's always the, the, the subtle balance that you need to maintain. So uh, you start looking at uh, the, the, the regional context, at least, if not even the global context. And then you look at what is the local context. This is primarily driven by local price benchmarks. So for instance, what, what are local prices for therapies that you are aiming at replacing? Obviously, you cannot have a total disconnect between uh, your, let's say, international price corridor goals and uh, the role of that specific country in the in the in the price corridor and the local market conditions, because uh, that is obviously, if you don't consider those constraints, uh, you're not going to launch. You're not going to achieve market access. Uh, then you start looking at what are the locally and globally acceptable trade-offs. First trade-off is obviously between price and time to market access, because obviously, especially in health systems where you have a negotiation phase, the greater, the higher the price goal that you are aiming for, the longer the negotiation. And uh, while in countries like Germany, you have a fixed number of negotiation rounds, in other countries like Italy, you may have an infinite number of negotiation rounds. You may go on and on and on, and the same in France. You know, it's uh, uh, that's why you may see such uh, longer, longer times to market access in uh, in countries like uh, Italy and uh, and France. Um, and finally, there is another trade-off between volumes and price. Again, you may you may even decide that locally you're not going to launch certain indications, for instance, in exchange for a higher price. Just to give you an example, in Italy, Obdivo has eventually decided to not negotiate prices, or let's say to accept class C, which means no reimbursement, for a couple of indications like renal cell carcinoma and uh, multiple, uh, sorry, malignant melanoma, uh, in combination with ipilimumab, because that was those were not indications that evidently the Italian health system wanted to reimburse at the price level that the company wanted to achieve. So those are the trade-offs. So you start from the international perspective, you consider the local constraints, and eventually you try to go for a reasonable compromise, bearing in mind the trade-offs, time to market versus price, volumes versus price. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that that's a good kind of um, introduction into how to maybe set the kind of strategy. Maybe turning a bit the perspective because I mean you have now especially spoken from the industry perspective, right? I mean, if you would advise payers, for example, the IFA or also the German head association of the Institute of Health Insurance Funds, um, what would you advise them? How should they basically then prepare for such, such price negotiations? Because they might have obviously the opposite kind of perspective. Yeah. You have just brought up as well the kind of timing issue, et cetera. I mean, what would, your, what would be your advice for the payers? Well, my perception is that they are already very, very, very clever. Uh, one of the uh, things that normally I say either during, uh, again, the courses that we hold at eSport or uh, in conversations with clients, 
is don't forget that your best negotiator in the company, the best of the best negotiators will have, you know, will have participated into 20, 30, maybe 40 negotiations. The average negotiator on the other side, on the payer side, normally participates into 30, 40 negotiations in one single year. So they are, in my opinion, they are a lot more prepared than the industry negotiators. That's my first, uh, my first comment. So yes, they, they, I believe they are typically better prepared than the industry negotiators. Um, what, I would, uh, what I would suggest, again, I have the greatest respect for those negotiators on the payer side, on the health system side. Uh, they, they have a lot of experience and obviously their job, their duty is to defend the sustainability of the health system, whether it's a private health system based on uh, multiple insurance companies or a national health system based on, uh, on government-run uh, uh, institutions and, uh, and local health authorities. You know, their duty is to ensure the sustainability of that system. So they do it. They do their job. Uh, we just need to be cognizant about the different roles and the different priorities and the different, uh, uh, again, the different intrinsic goals of, uh, of the two parties negotiating. What I would suggest is you are doing great at defending the health system's sustainability, but don't forget about the industry sustainability as well. Because on the other side, yeah, you may you may have a win. Yeah, you may force a company to accept a discount that they would normally not accept, and they are willing to accept that discount for one at least for for one product. But if you systematically do like that, even with greater greatest innovations, greatest products, I'm thinking about certain certain gene therapies, for instance, or certain revolutionary therapies. If, uh, if the concern about the sustainability of the system and the budget impact goes beyond a certain limit, that may impair the longer-term flow of innovation coming to that health system. So there needs to be a balance. I think that is the suggestion I would say, I would, I would give to payers. And then, I mean, that's obvious, but I think they do that jo their job already wonderfully. Look for real, real evidence. So... Uh, and also in that case, I'd say with a grain of salt, there are circumstances in which you cannot pretend a, a, a double-blind, randomized, uh, active control trial. There are many such circumstances, but there are some circumstances, certain conditions like rare diseases, especially rare diseases where you are coming with the very first new therapy uh, you know, there, there needs to be some sort of flexibility in assessing the level of evidence in certain circumstances. Obviously, I'm not talking about, uh, uh, I don't know, the, the, the fifth ACE inhibitor or whatever. I'm talking about, the, the, and, you know, there are certain, certain situations in which you need to be cognizant of the objective difficulties in collecting state-of-the-art uh, uh, clinical evidence. 
Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's probably, I think, a very good kind of summary. I mean, as you said, I think the experience is clearly on the other side when you're looking from the industry perspective. I think that's also an important consideration. But I think also, I think, uh, which uh, would need as well to be taken into account is the incentives for innovation, but also the definition for innovation is maybe yeah, sometimes a bit different, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And uh, again, there are uh, there are uh, different views, different perspectives. Again, I think uh, on both sides, there needs to be a balance. There needs to be, you know, again, understanding and acknowledgement of each other's priorities and objectives. Yeah, I, I agree. And mutual respect, you know. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's also important. Absolutely. Okay. Um, changing a bit the gears. I mean, we are currently in, in a pandemic. COVID-19 is, I think, affecting all of us, not only from a health perspective, but I think also in the long run. I personally think also from a budget perspective. Um, given those kind of constraints, do you expect falling prices in healthcare in the next years, maybe and especially in Europe? To be honest, I don't. I don't expect falling prices. Actually, I would expect the opposite to happen uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, I believe that the COVID crisis has demonstrated how myopic certain economic policies have been, especially in certain European countries. The health system is not an area for cost cutting and cost savings. The health system is an area for investments, sometimes long-term investments, sometimes investments that you know you're gonna you're not gonna see the how can I say the the payoff for those investments unless you have a crisis like COVID-19. You know, but you need to invest. You need to invest to make sure that should something like COVID-19 happen and happen again, the system is prepared and can sustain the the pressure from the challenge. Um, You know, I I live in a country, Italy, in which uh, uh, the, the healthcare expenditure has been dropping dramatically for decades as a percentage of the gross domestic product. So year after year, they were the, 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 the budget for the healthcare system was being set always at a level lower than, you know, in terms of the, the, the growth in the budget allocation was lower than the rate of inflation. So in real terms, there were resources being subtracted from the healthcare system, year after year, and not one, two, three years, for decades. And this has, eventually, this has caused the crisis with hospitals in, in which basically they had to kick out regular patients to, to, to make room for the COVID patients. Yeah. That is not the way to look at the health system. The health system, what you spend in the health system is not just an expense. It is to be looked at as an investment, something that you do, something that you invest to maintain the overall level of health of the country, of the population. I think uh, that's a big lesson to be learned. And that means that, again, going back to the concept of balance, also when you discuss prices, prices not just for pharmaceuticals, prices for all goods, Think of the face mask crisis that we faced in the early phases. You couldn't find face masks. Why? 
because prices being paid for face masks in Europe were so low that eventually only Chinese manufacturers could sustain those prices and no one else. And then all of a sudden you complain, you find out and you complain that there is no one manufacturing face masks in Europe. Why do you complain? You created that crisis. Exactly. By paying lower and lower prices, pretending, you know, and, and then you kick out of the market entire sectors of the industry. Yeah. You force the industry to reconvert and possibly, you know, live out of importations from cheaper countries. The same is happening. That's the next crisis, in my, in my opinion, with generics. Active substances for generics, where are they coming from? China, India. Absolutely. So if there is, again, price pressure, yeah, I think that, again, as we said, there needs to be a balance. I can understand why there is price pressure on the payer side, but that there should be some sort, again, of balance. There should be, you know, be cognizant because if you create the conditions for the industry to abandon a country or a region altogether like the European Union, then you're going to pay a price sooner or later. And you will pay that price in the form of delayed uh, supply of active substances or lower quality or lower quantity insufficient to face the crisis. So, Again, let's have a longer-term perspective, not just the short-term perspective of cutting budgets for next year. Yeah, I think um, that was also, again, I think a good kind of, uh, let's say, argumentation. I think at the end of the day, it's simple economics, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's price incentives and demand and supply. I mean, interestingly, it would be probably, I mean, that's also, I think, what I had in mind. And I think I also discussed that when the European Commission was, uh, let's say, announcing also with a lot of different um, health ministers, also the German health minister was um, behind that, that uh, there should be more incentives and more um, uh, uh, manufacturers, again, coming back to Europe. But the big question mark is exactly, as you also already said, if we have manufacturing more in Europe, that would also mean higher prices. And hence, we would need to have a higher willingness to pay those prices. We have, in in Europe, we have a certain kind of cost structure because of the laws that protect the workers, because of, you know, and we love our systems, but we also have to accept the consequences. So if in order to maintain work safety and in order to ensure a decent level of of compensation in in the way of salaries, etc. We have to accept that. And we have to accept that that implies higher manufacturing costs and higher prices. As simple as that. Otherwise, if you keep pushing on the prices, you will eventually erode profitability in the European Union and you will inevitably cause the migration of certain manufacturing uh, uh, activities outside of the EU. As simple as that. Yeah, no, I fully agree. Fully agree. Um, I mean, we have That's just... why I don't think prices will drop necessarily. <laughs> exactly. No, I think it, it is a very good kind of explanation, right? I mean, one could start, let's say, from more the kind of, uh, let's say, taxes decreases because of potentially the economic crisis, which I think would also still 
come in and kick in probably in the, in the next couple of months and years. But on the other hand, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, what has been shown and quite heavily demonstrated is the importance of the healthcare system. And I think that needs to be seen as an investment rather than a cost. I think that's a big difference. Yeah, you know, if, if the solution that people have in mind is to provide some uh, incentives for a couple of years to have an industry set, settling and uh, starting the production of vaccines, starting production of masks, and then that incentives disappears after a couple of years, that's a very short-lived investment. Absolutely. I, I can Actually, it's going to be to backfire because you make people invest and then you dry up the market for those goods that are supposed to be the result of that investment because you don't sustain the price levels for the goods that are manufactured there. Yeah. So not only it's a waste of money, it's, uh, it's, it's even worse because you create the conditions for making investments that eventually will not be amortized. Yeah, that's true. You need to maintain longer-term conditions for, for a sector to be profitable and for a sector to remain, for a strategic sector to remain in a certain, in a certain geography, to yeah. remain profitable over time. Yeah. And not be just, uh, you know, the incentives that you generate for one or two years. Okay, I mean, as we have spoken now about, let's say, uh, higher prices, the incentives, and all of those different kind of things, I mean, if we have now look into the U.S., I mean, there's a lot of discussion and debates, obviously, on also increasing prices over time. There are different reasons or whatever, but I think one of the, um, I think, uh, potential next steps, and it has already as well started with the Trump administration, but I think also the Biden administration, I think, wants to I think my understanding as well pick it up. I think it's the so-called reference price system in the U.S., which might also pick up, obviously, from prices from different European um, countries. How do you see that impacting the overall, the global pricing area in the U.S., but maybe also in Europe, when you hear about that kind of reference pricing and also the pressure on prices in the U.S.? Well, more than pressure on prices in the U.S., I believe there is going to be more pressure on pricing outside of the U.S. For the simple reason that, uh, especially for American companies that generate normally at least 60% of their revenues, and there are examples of companies like uh, Amgen or Biogen generating actually more than 70% of their revenues in the United States, you know, they are obviously they're going to protect that business. Um, again, so if, uh, if uh, there isn't much that they can do about products already launched outside of the US and priced already outside of the US, there isn't much that they can do about that. And, you know, they may decide to withdraw certain products if the conditions are really extreme. But they will, uh, they will possibly uh, re reassess their opportunities when they have to decide whether launching or not outside of the U.S. certain products. Uh, again, I mentioned already Obdivo, but Kitruda as, as well. There are several products that generate huge amounts of money and profit in the U.S. market. And... I bet you those companies are not going to give up on their profit in the U.S. because they need to launch in, uh, in, in the EU or in some other markets that are included in, uh, in the, let's say, in the new American uh, uh, international reference price basket. 
So my concern is that we might uh, we might see uh, less innovation coming to Europe and to those countries that are included in the in the most favored nation basket, in particular. Uh, that, that's a, that's a real threat. Yeah. No, I, I would agree. I mean, and I think the the ultimate kind of driver is quite clearly also the size of the US. I mean, you also just said that I think the revenue is obviously not only driven by the price itself, and the price might at least at the moment be higher in the US, at least the list prices, right? But I think at the end of the day, it's also the volume, which is the other part of that equation. It's I think the, the volume is just an incredibly large higher. market. And, That's uh, point. And, uh, and again, it's a profitable one. Yeah. Exactly. There is no 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 way around that. Uh, other markets, you know, profitability in other markets is definitely lower, and can only be sustained if you have the U.S. market behind you. Yeah, exactly. But uh, you know, so in terms of marginal profit that you may generate outside of the U.S., it's still it is still worth. Yeah. But. If you start being penalized in your own market where you generate the bulk of your profit, then, you know, that, that the consideration becomes, is different. Mm, that's true. So you may, you may start seeing products not being launched outside of the U.S. if things go the way we expect. Yeah. Let's just see. Let's just hope for the best. I think, Renato, thank you very much. For all of those different insights, I think we cover a lot of different perspectives here as well. I think it was good fun to discuss with you as well. And I uh, hope to as well get you in further discussions in the future again. Sure. Thank you, Stefan. Nice summary and great discussion with Renato Delamano, one of the most experienced pricing experts from a global perspective. I mean, I think you have felt also um, his experience, but also the kind of recommendation we need to see. I think where I'm not yet really sure if that is really true, what he also said in terms of pricing and the opportunities post the COVID pandemic, where I think he just had the kind of idea that the pricing will probably even be a bit easier, especially for those therapies where the evidence, the clinical evidence is provided. We just need to see also which kind of impact the whole kind of COVID might have on the overall budgets in the different healthcare systems. And then we can maybe have another discussion with Renato just to see whether this might be correct for all countries or I personally think that this might be different between the various countries, which might also then make a European and or global pricing strategy even more complex. Overall pricing strategy and a price to set a price is obviously kind of complex um, and yeah, endeavor. Um, I think Renato said very early on, it is an art, but also science, meaning the art is sometimes also a bit the kind of gut feeling, the kind of experience which is taken into account, but also then thinking about, for example, the kind of negotiations which are then taken into account, which is also already the kind of small kind of bridge towards the science. What is science around it? Science is quite clearly the part where the evidence would need to drive the pricing, meaning if you don't show a medical benefit, you can obviously hardly um, negotiate and agree on a higher price. Ultimately, there are also various kind of uh, scientific methods behind their willingness to pay methods, their willingness to accept methods, conjoint analysis, etc. I think all of the methods we have not really touched base in detail with Renato, but this is also part of the science. I hope you enjoyed the podcast also with Renato Delamano on the pricing and the pricing strategy 
and let's see what will happen in the near future. That was an episode of MAP, the market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. MAP is available every second week with a new episode, so watch out. And in case you might have questions, contact me directly and or visit our website on www.marketaccess-pricingstrategy.de.